righty, good morning. I'm so excited to be able to open up God's word with you. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. It's about two-thirds away through your Bible. It's the first gospel in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Matthew 28 this morning. And while you're flipping there, we've been highlighting steps of faith here at Sunbury City Church. So I want to highlight one. We have someone that attends here at the church. And over this past year, felt convicted. Felt convicted that they needed to engage a neighbor. This neighbor was alone, really no one in their life. So over the past year, they would knock on the door, invite them to a few things here and there at their house. Well, here just recently, feeling convicted, like I need to push this relationship deeper, went over, knocked on the door, got into a wonderful conversation. And by the end of the conversation, this neighbor is now going to go through the book of Mark with someone here at our church to get to get in the word, to learn more about our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, God is doing amazing things in the lives of Sunbury City Church. So that's just one that we wanted to highlight. Uh, We would love to hear more of those God stories. So feel free to, again, write those down. Uh, But we just wanted to share that to encourage you because sometimes taking that step of faith is scary. But now someone, because uh, she took a step of faith, someone's now going to be able to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we just want to praise the Lord for that. So this morning, we are going to talk about a topic that when you say this one word, kind of brings a little bit of trembling. We're going to talk about one-on-one evangelism. Evangelism is just sharing the gospel, talking about God. But before we dive into God's word this morning, I want to talk to you about a guy. His name is John G. Patton. Now, John Patton, he was born in 18... 24 in Scotland. He was a Scottish boy. So growing up, John had a difficult life. Not necessarily because of his parents or any of that, but it's just they didn't have much. They had very little to their name. So John, when he was at the age of 12, he actually had to quit school to work in a stocking factory with his dad just to help make ends meet. Well, really early on in John's life, he really desired God. Just wanted to know everything he could know about who God is. Well, when John got into his early 20s, we see that he spends hours upon hours upon hours just studying God's word, hoping to just learn something new. But also he was doing something else. It was preparing his heart to be a missionary. John felt called to the South Seas Islands. Now, if you don't know where that is, that's if you go to where Australia is and to the right, there's a bunch of little islands there and those are called the South Sea Islands. So John felt called to go there. Well, even though he felt called there, there were already two missionaries who were martyred for their faith, who were killed for sharing the gospel. 
But despite that, John said, I am still still going to go. Two weeks before he left, he actually married his wife, Mary. So this young couple packed up everything and then there they went to an island called Tana in the South Seas. And when they got there on the island, they were approached by the island natives. And when they looked out, they saw people, they painted their bodies, they were naked, and they had a culture of cannibalism. Just a very difficult group of people. And upon observing these island natives, the Patton family realized that these people were in desperate fear of evil spirits and evil gods. They were just in full pain and full misery. Tragedy will soon strike John. Really soon on in his missionary journey, on February 12th, his wife will pass away. Just a few weeks before that, they had a baby boy where he too will soon pass away. Unaided and all alone, John had buried his wife and his son. And in that moment, John had a decision to make. Full of grief, do I go back to Scotland? Do I go back home or do I stay? Well, John decided to persevere. He stayed on the island for another four years doing all he could to preach the hope of the gospel to these island natives. Well, during these four years, what we read is that these island natives became more hostile, attacking John left and right, where over 14 times John will face the doorstep of death. So he had to leave. He left home. So he left home or left the island to go back home. And for four years, he did two things. One, he remarried, he found another wife. And he also raised support to go back to the South Sea Islands to continue preaching the gospel. Well, he goes back after four years of raising support and being remarried. He goes to another island in the South Seas called Awana. And there in this island, He makes a claim. And let me read what he says. John says, I claim this island for Jesus. And by the grace of God, this island will worship at the Savior's feet. So that was his prayer. 14 years, John and his wife will see this entire island come to know Christ diligently and faithfully working one person after another, telling them of the hope of Jesus Christ. One thing that we know about John G. Patton is that his heart had a worship of God so much so that he was willing to give it all up his life. He was willing to give up his entire life for the mission of Christ. His heart was desired to tell others of Christ. So I'm wondering this, church, I'm wondering this morning, how many of us has a heart of worship, 
a worship of God so much so that we are willing to go to the cannibal or to the neighbor across the street to tell them of our Savior. And this is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the Great Commission where this is our main point. The main point that we're trying to uncover this morning is this, the mission of Christ, the mission of Christ is the fuel for greater worship to God. The mission of Christ is, the, is greater fuel or is the fuel for greater worship to God. What does that mean? What does that mean? When we are a part of God's mission, the result is that God will receive greater worship because we are telling more people about him. So that's, how, that's what we're going to unravel this morning as we look at Matthew 28. So church, will you stand with me as we read Matthew 28 in honor and reverence of God's word. We believe this word is with full authority. So we will stand in honor of it this morning. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And all of God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. So this morning, we're going to unpack two thoughts. The first thought that we're going to unpack is worship of Christ. And then the second we're going to unpack is the mission of Christ. And we're going to see how does these two ideas of our worship and Christ's mission, how do they live in harmony with one another? And this is going to go great for our sermon series. So our sermon series is how to, how to be whole when you feel shattered. And the key to, to become whole, to become restored in the midst of all of our brokenness is the gospel, is Christ is worship. And when we think about the year 2020, I think we all can agree that it's one for the books. I've heard this phrase a few times, like 2020 created just a lot of brokenness, created a lot of shatteredness in people's lives. And, and I agree. But it wasn't just 2020 that created our brokenness. It was 2019 and 2018 and 2017. Seems like every year, there's years that we have been broken. All what 2020 has done is magnified our need of a savior, magnified that we are in desperate need of someone to come and save us, for someone to give us a sense of direction in life. So this is, how we're, this is what we're gonna look at this morning. 
how our worship of Christ is going to push us to be part of his mission. So, so how does this fix our brokenness? How, how does worshiping God, how does that make us become whole when we are shattered? Well, I'll tell you, in the very DNA of our created beings, we were created to worship the creator. And when we talk about worshiping the creator, we are doing the very thing that we were designed to be. And that was to worship God. We're living out our life's purpose when we worship God. So that is why this is important. That is why when we think about evangelism and telling others about Christ, for people to become whole, it begins by knowing Christ, by worshiping him. So our first point this morning, which we we have to lay out a foundation before we dive in to the deep end of of evangelizing and and one-on-one evangelism, we have to dive in to our foundation. We have to know what is the reason for all of this. And this is the first point, Jesus and worship, Jesus and worship. So let's go ahead and say this, all cards on the table, all cards on the table church, that if there's not a worship of Christ in our heart, we will never have a desire to tell others about him. There has to be a living presence of Christ within us. If you will ever want to push in to one-on-one evangelism, to tell others about this God that we're reading about. So let's lay out this foundation of why you and I should worship Jesus. So maybe this morning you're on the fence, like, do I want to buy into this Jesus? Maybe you know someone at work that's on the fence. You're like, do I want to buy in to worshiping this Jesus? Well, let's go ahead and lay out the foundation to why we should worship Jesus. For us to lay out this foundation, we actually need to go back to the beginning. The beginning of Genesis, the very when it was all created. In Genesis chapter 3, what we see happen is Adam and Eve, they eat a fruit that God told them not to eat. And then at that moment, sin entered the world. How how do we know sin entered the world? Well, when they ate the fruit, they realized a couple things. One, that they were naked. And then two, knowing that they're naked, they heard God coming in the garden that they were living in. And instead of running up to God, instead of embracing him, they decided to hide because they were in fear of who they were. They were in fear of their sin. And right then and there, sin had caused the brokenness between man and God. So from that point forward, there's been this tension between man and God because there's this broken relationship. So in that moment, God could have done anything he wanted. He could have wiped out the world and started over. But this is what he decides to do. In Genesis chapter chapter three, verse 15, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So so what's the big deal of Genesis chapter three, verse 15? 
right there, God, from the beginning, is promising a Savior. It's promising a Savior, someone who's going to come and destroy, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will crush Satan. So let's fast forward to Matthew 28, the chapter that we're in, God's word today. Three days ago, Jesus was on the cross and he dies for the sins of of all peoples, died for your sins and he's died for my sins. He became a living sacrifice. And in that moment, as Genesis 3.15 says, that's when Satan had bruised his heel. Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. It's like Satan won. But Matthew 28 tells us something else. Three days later, Jesus will victoriously defeat death. He will victoriously defeat sin, creating the final blow to Satan's head, crushing his head where now Satan has no footstool over Christ. Christ is truly God. He defeated sin. He has defeated death, crushing the head of the serpent. So why worship Jesus? Why do we worship who Jesus is? It's because he is our Savior. And not only that, he is God. And the disciples saw that. The disciples recognized that. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, now do you see it? Do you see the response? The response of the disciples of seeing the resurrected Lord is worship where they fell down and worshiped him. But you're like, Chapin, but it says doubted. What, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that some doubted? See, throughout Jesus' ministry, they saw Jesus do amazing things. Feed the thousands, walk on water, heal the blind man, heal a lame man. Jesus has done amazing things. And now to the, the, the cherry on top, the capstone, he is resurrected. <laughs> so it was a doubt of I can't believe this is real. Pinch me, I'm dreaming kind of doubt. They were in full of worship and amazement of Jesus. When they saw him in that mountain of Galilee, all that they had within them was to be in awe and to be in worship. So what does your mind go to when you think of worship? I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking football. I'm a huge football nerd, right? I have the, the fan socks. I have my lucky socks. I got my lucky shirt. I got my lucky hat, right? I got the certain spot on the couch I want to sit at. I, I got the perfect yell to volume ratio on the TV. Like people, when they come in on a Saturday, they know what team I pull for. I, I pull for Clemson, right? In a sense, that is worship. Our physical expressions show worship, what we enjoy, what we like. 
So when we think about worshiping Christ, I think a lot of our minds, we go to, all right, I, I'm here at, at church. Do I have to raise my hand? Do I sing? Like, what does this worship look like? And before we even think about our physical expression of worship, we need to answer the question, what does our heart worship look like? What is our heart worship? We must have a worship of Christ in our hearts where we are constantly grasping upon the supreme God of the universe. Meaning when we wake up in the morning, we desire to know more of God. When we are going out throughout the day, we are desiring to know more of this risen Savior. When we go to bed at night, we are pushing deeper to know more intimately who the Father is. That is a heart worship where your day is surrounded by knowing more of the truths of God. Think of it this way. Let's think of it this way with a question. Are you satisfied in God? Are you satisfied in just God? Would you be satisfied if you wake up tomorrow to nothing? Is Christ enough for you? You get a phone call, your boss had to lay you off. Would you still be satisfied in Christ? Someone gets diagnosed with cancer. Someone you love, someone you care for, maybe even your own self. Is Christ still enough? Are you still satisfied in God? Our heart worship is going to the depths of who we are and just changing everything. Where everything we do is pushing us deeper to know more of who God is. And what happens is when this heart worship becomes so real in our lives, the only thing that we can do is express it. When Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you have a heart worship of Christ, your mouth will speak it. When you are out at work, when you are with family, when you're with friends, your heart will speak the worship of Christ. And then that's what will fuel you. As you think about serving others, loving your neighbor, uh, working with excellence at your job, out of the flow of your heart worship, it goes to all areas of our lives. The reason why we will sacrifice our money, the reason why we'll sacrifice our time is because our heart worship is pushing us to do so for the glory of God to help continue push this idea of, of how do we grow in worship in Christ in our hearts. Let's look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus' authority can, can help our heart worship? For sure, I believe so. Notice carefully what Jesus with this claim is doing. Over these past three years, the disciples experienced Jesus' authority. Jesus had authority over nature and nations. He's had authority over diseases and demons. 
Now Jesus has the authority to forgive sin and the authority over death. All things Jesus has authority over. There's no denying when we look in the gospels that Jesus has authority. So what, does, what about Jesus' authority helps our worship? Well, it pushes us to just solely rely on him. But there's the issue. It's nothing about Jesus' authority, but it's about us. If you're a human, <laughs> I think we all are, we hate authority. Our natural tendency as people is to rebel. Like parents, have you ever told your kids to take out the trash or clean up the room? They want to rebel against that. Your boss asks you to take an extra shift. You want to rebel. You just want to walk out. When someone is in authority telling us what to do, we, we just naturally want to rebel. Uh, a funny story about President Bush Sr. In 1990, when he, when he took the presidency, he did something that was kind of funny. He... Uh, he the Air Force One is the president's plane. And he put a ban on broccoli when aboard the Air Force One. He banned broccoli. Now, growing up, George's mom made him eat broccoli. Made him. He hated it. He always wanted to rebel against that. He's like, I just wanted to never eat the broccoli. So he took his power as a president of the United States to ban broccoli on the Air Force One. He says this, I am the president of the United States and I am not going to eat any more broccoli. Now, I know that's silly, but it reveals something. It reveals something about our heart. That when someone asks us to do something that we don't like, and they're in authority, we will rebel. Or our natural tendency is to rebel. But what about Jesus' authority, okay? Going back to Jesus' story, what about Jesus' authority pushes us to worship and not rebellion? I want to encourage us to think of two things. One, Jesus' authority is an absolute authority. Jesus' authority is an absolute authority. There's nothing above our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not one person or one thing or demon that, that is ruler over Jesus. There's no sickness. There's no uh, natural disaster. Christ is over all. So when we think about what should be ruling our hearts, what should our heart worship be, why not? Why not do we just not allow the creator, the sustainer, the one who's over in authority over all things, be the one who rules our heart? It's an absolute authority. But here's the kicker, church. Whatever rules your heart is what you will pursue. If you, if you love money, you're going to work extra shifts those extra shifts may cause you to neglect your family. You may want to cheat on your taxes, right? You, you'll begin to manipulate. If, 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 you're, if your heart worship is your identity, you'll go to the gym every day. You will uh, find the perfect, uh, perfect outfits. You'll spend money on anything to make your body image the way that you feel is the best. 
And not saying money or or identity is not important, but when they become rulers of our heart, it pushes us away from the one who should rule our hearts, which is the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. And the second area that we can trust the authority of Christ is it's a hope-filled authority. It's a hope-filled authority. Since God does have an absolute authority, you and I can worship God this morning with confidence, knowing that he is over all things. Does that give you hope? That whatever season of life, whether if you're on the hill or if you're in the valley, whatever you're wrestling with, you might be wrestling with your kids, you may be wrestling with a coworker, you may be wrestling with a neighbor. In all seasons of life, God is still over them. And when he says, I am working all things out for my good, you can have confidence, you can have hope because he has authority to do so. Is that pushing you, church? Is that pushing you to the deeper worship of Christ? Because this is the foundation. This is the foundation of it all, our heart worship and Christ, because Christ is about to call us to something so radical that it doesn't make sense. And this is the second point, Jesus and the mission. Jesus and the missions and the mission. So in verses 19 and 20, look with me. Jesus says, remember, he just made his claim of his authority. And what's about to come out of his mouth is because of his authority. Verses 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So let's be honest. This is not a comfortable calling to Christians. This is not a comfortable commission, church. This is a costly commission. A commission where we're going to have to be willing to give up our lives for the sake of Christ. And you know what? This is Jesus' plan from the beginning. When we look at the beginning of the gospel where Jesus is gathering his disciples, what does he do? He say, hey, follow me and I'm going to teach you to become fisher of people, fisher of men. Right from the beginning, this has been Jesus' plan of making disciples. That's been Jesus' M.O. over and over again. He's been about making disciples. So this is why we had to lay out the foundation of worship. Because if you don't want to worship Christ, you're not going to make a disciple. (laughs) There have to be a heart worship that will push us to obedience for Christ and his mission. So if our mission is to go and make disciples as as followers of Jesus, Jesus tells us how we do this. He says, first, you must go. If you want to make a disciple, you have to go. Secondly, you have to baptize. And thirdly, teach them. These three areas point to making a disciple. But this morning, like I said at the start, we're going to home in on one specific area on the Great Commission, and that's one-on-one evangelizing. So how and where does evangelism fit in the Great Commission? Well, go back to verse 19. The very first word 
of verse 19, Jesus says, go. So for many of us, when we hear this word go, a myriad of things come into our minds. A major misconception of the Great Commission is thinking of this word go. It's like, does that mean I have to go overseas like John Patton? Does that mean I have to go across country like the van rulers? What does that go mean? And this is pivotal for us to think one-on-one evangelism. I think it still applies to us, church. And I think Jesus is pushing us. And what we see, Jesus is telling us, it does apply to you. Either, either if you do go overseas or if you stay here in Sunbury, Pennsylvania, it still applies. Because we are going people. We go to the grocery store. We go to the coffee shop. We go to the gym. We go to work. We go to our families. All avenues of our lives, we are going people. So what's Jesus telling us to do? See, what Jesus is, he's not asking us to give him more time. He's not asking us to give us more time, but yet he's asking us to incorporate all areas of our lives for him. Think of it this way. We like to think of our lives in boxes. We have our family box. We have our work box. We got our finance box. We got our relationship box. We got our friend box. We got our uh, nonprofit box. We got our church box. We got all these boxes. Sometimes they're independent. Sometimes they mesh together. And this church box, Jesus is not asking us to give him more time in the church box. What Jesus is asking us in all of these boxes, in your friend box, in your finance box, in your relationship box, in your work box, have me there. Have me be in all of your boxes as you are going to these things. That's going. All areas of your life, you have, you have uh, submitted yourself, you have submitted, Submitted yourself to Christ ruling those areas. And I think for many of us, we're hearing this, right? We hear this idea of worshiping Christ and we know this is good. And we hear this idea, all right, being on mission, on Christ's mission and to go and evangelize. We know this is good, but we're hitting a wall. And it's how do we do it? Because when we think, Man, sharing the gospel with my neighbor, doing this going part makes our knees buckle. So, so how do we do this? How do, how do we do one-on-one evangelism? How do we be faithful, obedient people of the Great Commission? There's two areas to push ourselves in. And that's the first one is this. First, create a relationship. Create a relationship. We worship a intimate and loving God who does not give us a cold shoulder. We must be people who are intimate and loving people who do not have a cold shoulder. So do you know the names of your neighbors? Do you know the people that you work with? Do you know the name of your male person? In all areas of your life, who is this person that you need to create relationship with? Get to know. 
We could do this by making cookies and giving them. We can do this by writing a letter to our coworker who just lost a family member. There is a myriad of areas that we can build relationships, but we have to build relationship. When Jesus says in Mark 12, 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that is building relationship. That is loving them. That is serving them. So who is someone in your life that you can go deeper and build a relationship with, to invite over for dinner, to write a car to, and do what the King of Kings asks us to do and go. And the second area as we think about one-on-one evangelism is share the gospel. Share the gospel. And the American Christian idea of sharing the gospel that has really hindered the church is this. I am going to love them to Jesus. I'm going to love them to Jesus. Meaning, I'm going to buy the lunch for the rest of their life. I'm going to give them all the cookies. I'm going to, I'm going to do all these loving things and hope that they will come to faith. And those things are good. But Paul says in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And here it is. And how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? So part of loving them to Jesus is telling them about Jesus. So when we think about this idea of creating relationship and sharing the gospel, it's not like we pick one or the other, but yet we're marrying these two ideas together so that as we go deeper in the, our relationships in the gospel, in the relationships with them, we can push deeper in the gospel in their lives. So let's, let's actually play this out together this morning. All right, let's practically look at this. What does this look like? Let's break up the gospel in four parts. God, man slash woman, Christ, and response. All right? So say you deliver cookies to a neighbor and you find out she's a single mom. And as you developed a relationship with her, you realize that her dad left her at a young age. So as, you, as you're sitting with her, as you're talking with her, you, just, you were going to just go there for five minutes, deliver cookies, but the relationship just kept going. The conversation kept going. How do we now, all right, we, we're building a relationship. Now, how do we incorporate the gospel here? Well, she made a comment about how her, how her dad left when she was a kid. Well, we can tell her, like, you know what? Like, I, I believe in a God who is a good father, a father who will never leave you, a father who will never forsake you, a God who wants to know you, right? You're telling her about who God is. You're revealing something about her story and how God plays a piece in that story for her. So you go home, you tell her about God being a father, you go home, you write her a card and, and then next day you, you see her and then she, she says, thank you for the card and then begin talking again. And then, and then the conversation comes up again. You start sharing, it's like, you know, your dad, it's because of sin. You know, we are, we're fallen people, we, we've all sinned. And because of sin, there's broken relationships. Sin calls your dad to leave. Right, You're showing her that sin is in the picture and that we are separated from God. 
And Lord willing, after a few more times meeting and having conversation, you get the point to tell her that Christ has redeemed this all. Like he has brought redemption through dying on the cross. And you put it in her lap. It says, what do you want to do with this? How are you going to respond to this Savior? Right? What we are doing, we're, we're finding little moments of her story and showing how the gospel is the solution to her story. Little things about God, little things about Christ, little things about our brokenness. And we're trying to find like, where can we push this in deeper? So that's how we do it. We, we, we create a relationship. And as these relationships go forward, we're pushing in. We're speaking more truth in their lives. That's sharing the gospel, church. Notice, notice how sharing the gospel doesn't have to be just walking up to a stranger on the street and giving a three-minute elevator pitch of the gospel. No, it's a beautiful relationship where you get to tell a broken mom that there's a father who loves her and loves her kids. The man who lost everything because of his gambling addiction, you can tell him that that God gave up everything, his son, so that he could be saved. We do that by creating relationship. So that's one-on-one evangelism, church. And what we want to see here is that Jesus doesn't tell us to stop with one-on-one evangelism. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So notice that after we evangelize and Lord willing, somebody comes to faith, we, we bring them to church. We get them plugged into community. And Lord willing, they'll be baptized, proclaiming and showing the world that they are a follower of Christ. And then we teach them how to read the Bible. We teach them how to pray. We teach them more of the truths of Scripture. So let's pull everything together. Let's pull it all together. That's what our foundation, our worship of Christ His authority over all things has pushed us to be obedient. Has pushed us to be faithful followers of him. Right? And out of that obedience, we're we're doing one-on-one evangelism. We're, We're being part of the great commission. As we think about all this, it feels overwhelming. It can feel daunting. Like, do I have to save my neighborhood? Do I have to save my work, workplace? Do I have to save my family? It begins to feel overwhelming. But listen to the most beautiful words of Jesus at the end of verse 20. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These final words of Jesus are so comforting and yet encouraging. Knowing that it's not you who's saving the neighborhood. It's not you who's saving the workplace. It is Christ because he is with you, church. For all those who has put their faith in him, who has repented of their sin, Christ is with you to the very end of the age. The gospel of Matthew in the first few chapters starts off with an angel appearing to Mary saying, Mary, you will bear a son 
And you should call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And here, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is proclaiming that he will be with us. So when fear, church, when fear begins to creep in, when fear is telling you not to follow or worship this Jesus, when fear is creeping in and says, don't you dare engage that neighbor. Remember the words of our risen Lord and Savior with full authority that he is with you till the very end of the age. Let us pray. Father, we uh, thank you. We thank you for your word. Father, we, we thank you that back in the garden that you decided to bring a savior for us. So that now in 2020, despite how messed up this year has been, we know one thing is for sure, is that you are ruling and reigning supreme with full authority. Father, we pray, we pray that you will give us confidence to go out and be good, obedient servants for you. Father, convict our hearts of a neighbor, of a coworker, a family member. Father, convict our hearts to allow us to create deeper relationships so that we can push deeper the truths of the gospel in their lives. Father, we are nothing but broken cisterns, broken clay pots who can't even hold water. But yet you still say at the end of Matthew that you are with us to the very end of the age, using us as your vessels. Father, what amazing reality that is. So, Father, I pray that the remainder of our time that we have together this morning, that is all pointing to your holy and glorious name as King. In your son's name we pray, amen.